Hello everyone. Before we start, I want to turn over the top of our show to the head of ESG research at MSCI, Linda Ealing Lee. The crisis we are going through that was amplified by the murder of George Floyd by a Minnesota policeman demands response from all of our leaders. So I wanted Linda to join me as she leads our ESG research at MSCI. Here she is. I thought it was really important this week to take a moment up front to simply acknowledge what so many people are feeling this week, uh, which is a lot of anguish. Uh, For me, it's feeling quite despondent about the deep injustice that we see around us. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, we have to stop and acknowledge that their lives mattered. I also think it matters that a woman who could easily have been a friend or a neighbor of mine on the Upper West Side had called the police uh, on a black man who was just out watching the many, many lovely birds that I too have been enjoying watching with my kids in Central Park. So what's the way forward? I really don't have an answer and I don't think any of us do right now. Inequality alongside climate change is one of the biggest macro and intractable issues of our age and imposes a systemic risk to our economy and society, which we're really just beginning to see. And we're still such a long, long ways away from solving the climate crisis. But what we have begun to see over the last couple of years is what it would take to actually alter our course on the climate. No single individual, no single company or industry or even a single country can do it alone. We've seen that we need coordinated collective action. And we're beginning to see that, well, in the last couple of years, investors have actually stepped it up and and they're really taking a lead to band together to engage with hundreds of companies collectively and with policymakers and regulators. So really the question here is, you know, can we take that blueprint and try to do the same thing for racism and for inequality? I mean, right now, our social fabric is looking so very fragile. Many of us who have kids are having a hard time explaining why everything is so screwed up and, well, why actually it's been actually like this for already a very, very long time for some groups in our society and so little has actually changed for them. We really need to make a start as individuals, as companies, as investors, and collectively as an industry working with each other, the way we've actually started to come together on the issue of climate change. And because the foundations of everything we do at MSCI ESG is research-led, I think we naturally turn to uh, starting with data and educating ourselves with data. So I just wanted to kind of point out we've come across some interesting data sets on these issues at Campaign Zero. And if you, our listeners, uh, know of other good sources of data, we would really love to hear from you if you do have good sources of data. Because my point is that, you know, we're going to have to start somewhere, and I say that we have to start by looking at the evidence so we can have a data-driven discussion about why this keeps happening and what we can do about it together. A subdued welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to discuss two stories. First, my colleague Andrew Young joins me to give a hot take on the decision by Facebook to not rein in U.S. President Donald Trump's tweets promoting violence against peaceful protesters, even though its industry peer, Twitter, 
has decided to do so. And then Valina Karazova and Kevin Kwok join me to discuss how utilities are transitioning to a carbon neutral future. That's a bit happier of a story to kind of round out a pretty difficult week. I hope everyone is out there letting their voices be known, but also staying safe. And thanks for joining us. On Friday, May 29th, Twitter affixed a warning label to a Trump tweet that said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Facebook, on the other hand, decided to not act on that same message, and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg decided to distance himself between the fight between Twitter and President Trump. I have Andrew Young with me, who covers both Twitter and Facebook, and Andrew, what I'm curious about right now is the fact that Twitter set up an example in an industry of how to put a label on a tweet that they might disagree with in terms of its content, in terms of its enacting violence, in terms of its inaccuracy. They did this when Trump was saying that there could be widespread voter fraud because of mail-in votes. They said, here, get some information on voter fraud by clicking this button under Trump's tweets. Is the situation now such that investors and shareholders in Facebook are going to say, The industry example has been set on how you can curate content that is detrimental. And so Facebook is now going to have to answer those questions due to the fact that Twitter has basically put a line in the sand. Uh, So it's not like they have to comply with um, a a new industry benchmark. But we have, have like you said, a a point of reference here. Um, and it comes across that Twitter is now more transparent in, in how it's uh, enforced because they can justify um, that, uh, that curation of, uh, of Trump's comments. Uh, they can point to actual hard evidence about why it's inaccurate, um, which then begs the question for Facebook, um, if Twitter can do it, why can't you? So there's that point of view. And then another point is, is the governance issue. Why is it there's okay two things from the government's point of view? Why is it Zuckerberg who's defending you know, these policies? Why is it not their content governance team, um, which is meant to be independent of the company? Um, and secondly, that content governance team, which there was a you know a big uh, a big publicity thing last year, they created this semi-autonomous group um, to oversee the guidelines. That's not even set up yet. They don't even have that committee. Um, They're hoping to have it later this year. So, you know, for a company with the resources of Facebook to take more than six months to to form a committee um, seems to be another governance issue. Also, ostensibly, it would seem like that committee would be useful for Zuckerberg so he wouldn't make this a personal situation. It would be a decision not to include content or not to promote content because of an independent committee that decided to do this. Uh, have shareholders reacted to this decision at all? Um, you know, and shareholders have proposed for the last two years um, a content governance report, um, which has been voted down um, both times quite comprehensively. This kind of control, this kind of procedure, producing a content governance report that is going to allow the company to build its trust uh, in the market, um, in, in the public domain. Um, because right now we don't have the clarity about the company's content guidelines or how it enforces those guidelines. Because it seems that the guidelines are not uh, equitably enforced for all its users.
So I'm still processing the fact that 2020 was supposed to be the year of coordinated and comprehensive climate action. And amidst the global pandemic and a cloud of institutionalized racial injustice, there have been some shoots of green that got into the headlines about carbon reductions. A large number of fossil fuel companies and utility companies have publicly committed to becoming carbon neutral by 2030 or 2050. We've talked before briefly on this podcast about what the worth of oil and gas companies that claim carbon neutrality as their ultimate goal are, but today we are going to broaden the conversation to encompass utilities. And utilities are unlike oil and gas companies in that most of their emissions are scope one and scope two emissions. They are in how they operate their businesses, the energy that they create that's used to power our homes and businesses. While for oil and gas companies, most of their emissions are scope three emissions or the emissions generated when someone like a utility uses their product. But before we begin, I also want to define what companies actually mean when they say net zero or getting to carbon neutrality. A company can achieve carbon neutrality when any newly generated greenhouse gas emissions that they create are balanced out by removing the same metric tonnage of emissions from the atmosphere. This is known as carbon renewal. And that can be done through carbon capture strategies or sometimes by buying carbon credits. And they can also be done by planting trees. But that has been controversial because usually it takes a tree to get to its maturity in about 50 years for that tree to reduce the amount of carbon that companies say planting it does. Now, net zero pushes do not mean divestment from fossil fuels. You actually need fossil fuel companies to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. And in the oil and gas sector, we've talked a lot with Antonios Panagiotopoulos about companies that have made some sort of pledge to become carbon neutral. BP said it's going to be carbon neutral by 2050 or sooner. Shell, Eni, Total, and Repsol are also aligned with pledges made under the Paris Climate Agreement, but actually none of the dozens of American fossil fuel corporations have public disclosures on climate change comparable to the companies that I just mentioned that are basically located in Europe. But not many people have talked about the carbon promises made by utilities that use these companies' fuel to produce energy. And that is just what my guests this week, Valina Karazova and Kevin Kwok, are going to discuss. Because with our colleagues, Gorov Trevidi and Frank Lee, Valina just finished codifying a number of utility companies' carbon reduction targets. And Valina, first, I wanted to ask you about one of those companies, Orsted, which we view as kind of a success story when it comes to setting and meeting carbon reduction targets. Yes, Mike, uh, it's a good uh, good question uh, that you're um, asking here. And Orsted is um, really one of the good examples uh, of that. Uh, really, um, I would say one of the companies or probably the first company that um, is targeting to reduce emissions practically to, to zero by 2025, uh, which is probably the earliest we have seen from a company that used to have oil and gas assets, uh, and it also used to have a lot of uh, a lot of coal generation as well. So very aggressive and very uh, very ambitious um, indeed. Uh, they have uh, been successful so far. They've divested their oil and gas assets. Um, all of their coal plants are now converted to, to biomass. Uh, and the last remaining one is expected to close in a couple of years' time, um, I believe. So it's not only targets or aspirations on paper that they have put out there. It's uh, something that has been backed up by, by actual 
uh, actions and strategy by the company and the company has been actively working on that. And why was Orsted able to do this so successfully? There was a structural reason they could make this transition better than any other company has done so far, correct? I think it's maybe a little bit of structure that uh, could have helped, but ultimately it's all about strategy. Um, the company, uh, company management uh, at some point just saw uh, the long-term trends that uh, oil and gas would be a declining, uh, would be a declining business. And yes, it was not going to be immediate, but it was in the, uh, in the long term. Um, it was going to happen. And um, actually the growing, the, the growing business and the growing opportunity was uh, in renewable energy. So it was just a conscious strategic decision to actually exit what was going to be declining over the long term and enter um, uh, the, the field that was going to be growing over the long term. Uh, what helped probably was the fact so Orsted, yes, it's the biggest renewable, one of the biggest renewable uh, investors, but it is a very precise uh, area which is offshore wind uh, and uh, Orsted had offshore oil and gas assets. So it used to manage the oil and gas assets uh, in the Danish um, North, North Sea. So actually switching, they, they already had the offshore capability of working in such, um, in such environments. So for them, it was easier to switch uh, from working on oil and gas assets offshore just to work on uh, on wind assets uh, offshore. It probably helps the fact that one of the biggest um, wind turbine producers also happens to be a Danish company, Vestas. Uh, so Orsted actually entered uh, the, um, the wind market very, very early on. I think one of their first wind farms was somewhere in the late 90s. So obviously it wasn't big scale and they actually entered um, renewables in a bigger scale uh, after 2010, so 20 years later. But it's been something that they have been um, keeping an eye on for a very long time. So I would call it just a very conscious strategic decision that um, they've wanted to, to move quick and to move fast. So Kevin, I think I kind of want to put this into context because as I said earlier, Antonios and I have really discussed this in terms of oil and gas more so than we have utilities. And Valina just said a compelling thing about a utility, which is much different than an oil and gas company as I noted beforehand, but I still kind of want to make that comparison. Could you help me out? Could you tell me the difference between a utility transitioning to a net neutral system versus an oil and gas company transitioning to a net neutral system? Yeah, so when you really think about Chevron and Exxon, you know, they're not considered a utilities company. They're in the exploration and production side of um, the oil and gas sector. So, you know, Chevron in the past 20 years, they have been doing some solar, wind and geothermal projects. But unfortunately, they've been having some low returns and they ended up continuing on to focus on their oil and gas business side. 
And similarly, Exxon, um, they focus up quite a bit on greenhouse reduction strategies. They don't really talk too much about the renewable side. However, they do talk about biofuel advancements and carbon capture. Um, but at the same time, you know, this technology is still really early um, in their stages. So it's still too hard to say that, you know, this existing technology is feasible enough to be realistic on a real scale. Um, you know, like the thinking about Exxon and Chevron, you know, their their bread and butter is oil and gas production, where thinking about, you know, you know, thinking about the utility side, you know, their focus mainly is on, um, you know, the, the transportation and distribution and generation of electricity to the consumer side. And if they did have oil and gas assets, typically, you know, as, as you can see of Orsted, they are divesting it and focusing on the renewable side of the sector. So I've had Antonio on this podcast a lot, and he's talked about the fact that oil and gas companies are now buying up utilities to get the money from energy generation because if they want to move to renewables, they need to find another way to become more profitable. And so I didn't, I've never asked him this, um, but it made me think that, do you think shareholders will ever push for a kind of natural monopoly to be established where oil and gas companies combine with utilities and there can be this transition away from fossil fuels without this whole discussion of, well, our company, our company is based on the extraction of fossil fuels. So if we do this, we're going to lose too much market share. Yeah, so a monopoly, and you're talking about adding utility side to it. Um, in the U.S., I think that would be really difficult just because there's a lot of regulations around the utility sector, and a lot of the utilities in the U.S. are tied to municipalities. Um, thinking about the oil and gas companies, um, you know, they are, they are investor-owned. Um, you know, it's not like in Europe where they, you do find some state-owned entities, um, so it's supported by the government. Um, at the same time, you know, you're thinking about, well, does a monopoly make sense? Not really, because you have to think about, you know, at the beginning of the century when all these oil companies in the U.S. were actually standard oil. And eventually, due to antitrust acts, um, they were split into these different entities. And, you know, what's left of the remnants of the, the, the monopoly in the past is now ExxonMobil and Chevron. Valina, do you feel the same way about that? Uh, yeah. I don't think monopoly has ever helped anybody <laughs> uh, where, you, where you actually have a choice. And renewables, yes, uh, are increasingly competitive. Uh, and now cheaper in certain geographies than fossil fuels, but um, they still uh, have a little bit to go until they, um, they achieve price parity with fossil fuels everywhere. And this happens only through um, the ability of various companies to work on their supply chains or to work on, uh, on innovation um, and to, to gain uh, to gain skills to, to actually deliver those projects better and better and cheaper and cheaper. So uh, I think monopoly is definitely not the answer here. And that's it for our show. I wanted to thank Linda and Andrew and Valina and Kevin for joining me this week to discuss the news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. Um, please don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please stay safe out there. I hope everyone is doing as well as they can in this sad day in U.S. history. Thanks again and talk to you soon.
The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.